if you build a building, most likely it's with you for a hundred plus years, right? So it's something that there's a great job to be done, a big job to be done in terms of retrofitting and making existing buildings better. It's also important that we build new buildings in a better, more sustainable way. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Tim Kreisink, managing partner at Mass Mutual Ventures. Mass Mutual is an insurance and financial services firm with $460 billion in AUM, and Mass Mutual Ventures is their venture arm. Their new U.S. Climatech fund represents $100 million and is focused on early stage opportunities, think Series A or B, in climate intelligence, sustainable cities, and clean power. Their initial check sizes are $2 to $5 million. Tim was previously managing director at Equinor Ventures, where he worked across the energy value chain, including renewables, fusion, mobility, and storage. He was also a consultant at Cambridge Energy Research Associates, now part of S&P Global, a researcher at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and a political risk consultant at Google. Kreisik achieved all these great things because he got an MBA from Duke University, where I teach. Insert parentheses. I, of course, am exaggerating. Tim's a great guy. Anyway, when not investing in world-changing companies, I hear that he's an inspiring, maybe inspiring or aspiring, let's do both those things, Eastern European cook focused on the three Ps, which maybe I can pronounce, pierogies, palmeni, and potica. I'm sure someone will correct me if I mispronounce those. In this episode, we talked about his team's work investing in five climate tech unicorns, that is, at Equinor, how his study of geopolitics across 12 countries shaped him into an investor. That is not the typical path to be an investor, but good training nonetheless. What their climate intelligence focus means as one of their three pillars in terms of cheaper data and falling processing costs. How the net zero tracker of corporate climate goals influences their thesis around voluntary carbon markets. Why he's excited about investing in prop tech, that is property tech, given the durability of buildings and the potential value that Mass Mutual can create for companies in the space given its large real estate holdings. What he means by keeping one foot on certain ground and the other on uncertain ground when it comes to maybe career development slash growth. How much water he drinks per day and its relationship to the number of steps he takes each day as part humor, or maybe poor attempts at humor, his three favorite climate books and three favorite 
business books, think Parallel and others. Anyway, lots more. Hope you enjoy it. And please give Tim and Mass Mutual Ventures a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. P.S. I promise this is actually Chris Wedding recording this despite sounding like a clothespin is uh, attached to my nose. Uh, another gift uh, from attending Climate Week in New York was coming home with with COVID. Hooray. I guess I got the booster the natural way, I suppose. The other PS, I suppose, PSS, if you or a friend are building a growth stage climate tech company and looking to surround yourself with others going through the same process and preferring not to be alone in the process, looking for ways to kind of hack that growth, if you will, sharing best practices and the like. I, of course, happen to run such a wonderful peer group program at Entrepreneurs for Impact. 35 of us uh, right now across North America, wonderful human beings who happen to also be creating $10 billion or so of market value around for-profit climate solutions. If you want to chat, I'm sure there's some sort of button on our website, Entrepreneurs for Impact, or find me on LinkedIn and we'll... uh, We'll do an information interview if it's a possible fit for you. Hey, that's all. Enjoy the pod. Dan Kreisick, Managing Partner at Mass Mutual Ventures. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Good to see you. Twice in two, in two weeks. So I'll tell you, how, how lucky am I? Yes, it's interesting that when we met last at Climate Week, we were a lot soggier, wetter than we are right now. That Monday, for those of you listening who were at Climate Week on whatever it was, the 18th, God bless you for trudging across the city to go to all these meetings uh, in a mess. And in that meeting, Tim, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I've known you for a three or four years here, and I'd never heard the fun little soundbite you gave me at the what was it the the pen club library goodness gracious what a setting for auspicious future here together tim anyway you you mentioned that in your prior role as an investor at equinor at least five of those portfolio companies had reached unicorn status dot 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 maybe more to come who knows goodness gracious um that's that's not normal tim no, it's it's not. And it's not just about me. Uh, I was fortunate to have a, a tremendous team at Ekmar Ventures. And uh, so a lot of the credit goes goes to my old crew. Uh, but yeah, extremely happy for the portfolio companies from that from that group that are breaking through. And and as you said, dot, 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 more, more to come. Well, like a good leader should, deflected, you know, deflected, pointed to your <laughs> team, right? It takes a great team, no doubt. Anyway, I think listeners will appreciate that is that is super abnormal. Clearly, a guarantee of what you will do <laughs> in the future. One day, only because isn't that what all the fine print on like investment prospectuses say? Is past results guarantee? Oh wait, it's not. Anyway, it's a hell of a track record in this space. I mean, you know, certainly pretty early in the space and a, a unique position. 
to be at Equinor as strategic, right? Investing in this space. So b- before we get to your current role, pretty exciting in a in a different way. What made investing as a corporate strategic, I don't know, better sl- or better or harder, I suppose, than a pure financial investor? I think what made it more challenging was that you know, as a strategic, especially with an LP with the breadth and the ambition that Equinor has to become a net zero energy company, the scope was pretty wide. You know, the scope was wide and the toolbox was pretty expansive as well. So we invested across the, the climate tech spectrum and we had a variety of tools. We could do seed investments. We could go late stage. I think, you know, now that I'm in a, in a financial fund, it's much more focused by theme uh, and by stage. You know, now it's very clear we're looking for Series A, Series B climate tech companies in three specific priority investment areas, willing to do hardware and software. But the strike zone is tighter now than it was before. And I think that has its advantages, certainly. Well, Tim, if uh, if venture capital doesn't work out for you, I think politics is the next step here. <laughs> Beautiful way of redirecting the question to not the past, but the future, baby, the present at, uh, at Mass Mutual. So let's go there in a very kind of intentional way. You're in a spot where Mass Mutual has been investing in venture for a while, uh, not so much necessarily... Uh, explicitly in climate tech. So it's great. It's great that it's it's both blank slate for you to craft, you and your partner to craft, build a team, but th- there's full belief in the thesis financially. Of course, Mass Mutual does not just allocate capital to venture. Maybe say more about its various uh, pockets, if you will, and why that makes uh, Mass Mutual I don't know, different slash more interesting to companies. Yeah, I, I've been learning uh, Mass Mutual, you know, for the past five months since I made the jump. So I can I can share what I've discovered. I mean, it's a fantastic place. It's got a great culture. And I've been really interested to learn about all the other asset classes and fund managers. So to give you a, a big picture, a big overview of, of the fund and the firm, you know, Mass Mutual has... $460 billion of assets under management. So within Mass Mutual, within the investment management division of Mass Mutual, you'll find an alternatives practice, you'll find fixed income, you'll find ventures, of course. And then there's a firm called Bearings, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Mass Mutual. And they have over $300 billion of assets under management, and they have growth funds and infrastructure funds. So I believe that part of our value proposition to founders is that we could be a gateway. We could help introduce a, a company that's growing, perhaps growing out of the venture phase to later stage sources of capital as they develop. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we bring to the table. And if you ask me you know, to compare and contrast with Equinor, one of the fun parts about Equinor is we were able to take new climate technologies. I mean, we made the first ever investments within Equinor into areas like fusion and green hydrogen and all solid state batteries and direct ocean capture, you know, that my former team, we were able to introduce those concepts into an industrial setting and get people thinking, how could the company participate in those growth beams? What kinds of partnerships and and collaborations could be made out of those venture investments? And now in a financial setting, 
it's a similar take. If we can start to show progress at the venture level, well, what might that mean for a growth fund manager or for an infrastructure fund manager? Could we socialize technology that might be future investment themes, broader investment themes uh, in their own right? So that's an exciting challenge. It all starts, of course, with, with uh, success at the venture stage. And you mentioned bearings. Now, is that AUM you mentioned 300, I think, billion dollars or so part of the 460 or different, separate from the 460? Some of the funds that Mass Mutual has, it invests itself and some bearings, uh, it invests with bearings and then bearings can accept third party capital uh, as well. Okay. And just real quick, maybe the, the thesis of, of bearings, if you will, as a kind of complement to what you all do. Well, the part where we intersect with bearings, which is really interesting, we've got three priority areas in terms of venture investment, climate intelligence, sustainable cities, and clean power. And I can circle back and uh, double click on any of those, but bearings has uh, a major exposure uh, to the real estate sector. And bearings also has a prop tech team uh, within bearings that helps asset managers to think about ways to add technology to their businesses and to decarbonize their assets. And so Carl Beinkamp and my partner and I sit on the prop tech committee within bearings, which is a great way to test ideas and concepts with real asset managers, get their feedback, understand their challenges, and then compare what they think are opportunities or pain points with what we're seeing in the market. Yeah, that's, that's a great, it's a great example, right? This is one way that, uh, you're both doing a little bit of field work, but that field work could lead to to contracts, right? Or for your own portfolio companies. Maybe say more about how you're building out the team at Mass Mutual. I guess is it built out? Is it? You probably don't need more resumes in your list, but what is the process like to build out a you know a new team in climate tech at a place like Mass Mutual? So. Right now, uh, it, it's just a team of two. It's just me and Carl. Um, and we've been uh, developing the the investment thesis and the fund strategy together over the summer. We closed the fund a few weeks back, so we're ready to go in terms of funding investments. We'd like to add uh, a couple of people to the team uh, over time. And um, we need to add additional skill sets. We also want to add different perspectives. The investment strategy that we have at the moment is really a function of, of two things. It reflects areas in which Carl and I feel calibrated and connected and we can be uh, we can be dangerous. And then it also reflects some of the things that mass mutual and bearings are doing in the world that we think are special that we can lean into uh, and get value from. And so that's how we came up with the investment themes. But of course, as any team grows and you add skill sets, and capabilities, our worldview may shift over time. Uh, so yeah, we're looking for a couple of, of uh, special people to come and join us and be part of the founding team. So brief aside here, I think I, I get maybe 4,000 requests per year around, slight exaggeration, around how do I get a job in Climate Tech VC? So Tim, those 4,000 folks listening um, just in my, in my little world, I don't know, any, any, any advice for folks who want to work for a team like yours at some point in their life? Well, I would say wherever you are, there's hope. I mean, I've had a pretty long and winding road to, to venture capital, which I'm, which I'm happy to get into, but I tend to think about, 
I tend to think about it in the following way. I mean, you need to be able to pick up the strategic narrative and make it actionable, right? So you need to take these big trends and, and break them down into investment themes and sub themes. And you have to be able to frame things and communicate effectively, right? So that's, that's the communication and the strategy piece of, of ventures. You have to be comfortable with the numbers. Um, you have to be able to, to do the modeling and to make some reasonable assumptions to ground that strategic analysis in some financial analysis. And I think you, on top of that, those basic skills, if you can add subject matter expertise, if you've worked at a startup, if you've worked in government, certainly, and you have knowledge of the policy space, those sorts of things, or if you have an engineering degree, those sorts of competencies just add to that foundation of thinking critically about the world around us, distilling it into actionable insights, and then running the numbers, stress testing the business concept to say, is this reasonable? Is this plausible? And if it scales, do I have a return profile that fits with the risk I'm about to take? Hmm. I like how you started your answer by saying, wherever you are, right, there is hope. There is hope, folks. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to ask you that to, to go a bit deeper on your path. But before we do that, I'm going to share just a quick anecdote. I was meeting with someone at Climate Week and they're like, oh, well, how did you get into private equity? I said, I just, I just fell into it. She's like, no, you don't just fall into private equity. I said, no, 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 it's true. I did not get into private equity because I followed a traditional path and was an expert in financial modeling. I kind of got into PD because I've got a ponytail and, <laughs> and a PhD in green building. In fact, the CEO said, if you ever cut your ponytail, you're fired, right? I mean- this was vicariously through the CFO. It was a joke, but it was also like, you know, this is like who you are slash your expertise. Right. Don't try to be what you're not, you know. Say more about, Tim, your your path to VC. Then we'll, we're going to go back to sure. dig into mass mutual strategy. Yeah. I mean, there's really three chapters to my path. And, you know, well, the listeners can, can judge, but I think I came from a pretty unlikely place. So, so my first chapter, my undergrad and graduate work was all in international affairs. I've always been fascinated by the big forces that are shaping our world, uh, the geopolitics, you know, that, that shape the world that we live in. And, um, I did my graduate work in the UK. And one of the benefits of the British system is that you have extraordinarily long breaks. So you have six weeks of break and then eight to 10 weeks of term time, and then another six weeks of break. So you can read really long books. And I picked up this book uh, by Dan Jurgen called The Prize, which you describe it in many ways, but my take is that it's an alternative history of the 21st century. And it stresses the importance of energy markets in defining the, the political landscape. So I, I finished that book and I thought, you know, in order to really understand international relations, I have to understand energy markets more fundamentally. And so that sent me into a decade of working in the energy industry as a consultant and then uh, in corporate life. And that got me exposed to very sophisticated capital allocation, mega projects on a global scale. I got to work on different types of projects where there was oil and gas, solar, offshore wind. 
Uh, and I got a very global and international experience. I think in the, the 10 years that I would say I was really in the, you know, the core of the industry, I think I lived, worked and studied in over a dozen countries. So I came out of that 2016, 2017, and I thought, you know, to really understand energy markets going forward, I've got to understand technology and climate at a deeper level. And so I spent the last seven years working at this nexus of sustainability, energy transition strategy, and venture investing. And then once I joined Equinor Ventures, it was clear that ventures was really the perfect fit for me because I could think strategically, but act tactically and practically by making these investments. And I also think it's the most human part of, of finance uh, in that so much of it is evaluating and betting on and, and working with teams, uh, new teams that are forming. And so I thought it was just a great, it was a great fit. Um, and it allowed me, you know, in, in the corporate life, you're often working on a project or a function. And what I liked about venture so much is that I'm working with the totality of the business at an earlier stage, of course, but I found that very fulfilling and a great way to use everything I learned to date, including the, the whole business school curriculum. I find I use on a daily basis in ventures. Yeah. I'll say the irony for me is that now my reflection sitting in 2023, it's like, wow, how important are geopolitics to climate tech ventures, right? Because you think of all the diplomacy that goes on around the cops and the impact of that. You think of Chinese, US, and European industrial policy with respect to the energy transition. And you think of the war in Eastern Europe and how much Russia's invasion of Ukraine has influenced energy markets and the transition, especially in Europe. So it's almost like I've come full circle, Chris, and you know, almost 20 years later, I'm now appreciating what I started with early in the journey. Yeah, I mean, hindsight 2020 and all that jazz. Tim, I think what I want to leave listeners with from everything you just said, okay, the key is I'm going to, this is going to be the title of our podcast here. I'm joking. The key to getting into Climate Tech VC is to take six-week-long vacations, travel the world, and read long books. Is that right? It works for me. So Okay. Perfect. Yes. Atypical path, many paths to get there. Okay. Let's go back to Mass Mutual. You mentioned there are these three buckets, let's say. Maybe, uh, I don't know, let's pick climate intelligence, for example. What does it mean? What are some kind of subsectors within climate intelligence that you're looking at? What are some of the key questions you're wrestling with to decide to invest in some of these subsectors in climate intelligence, maybe? Yeah. So climate intelligence is, is a good one to start with. I mean, we think about this in the following way. We think about a group of companies that are leveraging data and analysis on natural systems and human systems, big data analysis applied to climate-related decisions and solutions, right? So if you if you think about the amount of data that's available, it's expanding rapidly. Geospatial data, financial data, there's more and more data all the time. The processing costs are going down. The acquisition costs are generally going down. So you think of a value chain of data acquisition, insight generation, and then creating applications for end users. And as you heard in my setup, two of the personas that we have access to uh, within the mass mutual and bearings ecosystem 
are financial asset managers and renewable developers. And so we're particularly interested in this nexus of climate and big data when it creates solutions for those two personas, because then, then we can have useful conversations internally and really think critically about investment opportunities. So subsectors might include mapping services for renewable developers, helping them to locate projects more effectively, closer to transmission in the right place on the map. It would include enabling technology for voluntary carbon markets. You've got a forest-based credit or a mangroves-based carbon credit, and you want to digitally monitor or verify uh, what's going on at ground level. That would be an example. It could be climate insurance-related companies not because our single LP is an insurance company, but because it's an investment category that fits the climate intelligence theme. So those are some some details within that space. Super helpful breakdown. You know, the 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 call before we pressed record, uh, I've got uh, 24 or so early stage founders that I'm coaching uh, is the wrong word. Um, we're learning. We're learning together about uh, funding in the space, and one of them says, uh, "Yeah, we just got approval to develop, you know, fourteen thousand hectares in the Philippines for mangrove restoration and preservation to sell these carbon credits." I can imagine someone like that, right, or they're the investor in that project who ultimately cares about what the buyers of those offsets thinks. So, like, oh well, rest assured, corporate buyer who who wants to avoid some negative headline. Here is this digital tool to make sure that the project is on track to deliver said benefits versus versus the opposite. That's exactly right. And you know, we talked about this at Climate Week. I spent the day after that after we met up at a conference just devoted to the future of voluntary carbon markets and and trust is the key word. And uh, the market's really driven by corporate buyers who are trying to find credits, use them as offsets within the context of their net zero strategies. And, and that's what they're demanding because there's been enough negative attention on credits that were underperforming. People want to make sure that, that the product that they bought is doing what it said it would do. Uh, so that's, that's an exciting space and an important space, I think, because we want to price these externalities with respect to climate. And you know, until we have a, a broader system a more inclusive system mandated by by governments than the voluntary market is is what we have to work with. Right. Let's go one little deeper here. So, you know, you've seen the headlines as I have, lots of listeners, you know, 20, at least 20%, probably a larger percentage of the world's biggest companies have made public commitments to be net zero by, you know, often 2050, sometimes a little earlier. I think it's probably true. Most of them don't know how they're going to get there. And the, the people who will be in power then are not the same ones who are in power right now. Dot, 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 very important sidebar. But how do you think about the methods they use to reach those goals and how much of that progress is accomplished outside of their board, their borders, their boundaries, if you will, through more trusted carbon offsets versus something else. I mean, I'm sure that math exists somewhere, 
But how do you think about that as kind of the, the pool of buyers uh, who care about whatever company you invest in in this space? Yeah, I something that stuck with me on, on the way to New York, I read a report called the Net Zero Tracker. And they had looked at the level of commitments toward net zero. And the headlines were pretty inspiring, Chris. I mean, it, it was something like over 90% of GDP now covered by a net zero goal, 88% of the population, 80 plus percent of emissions. So at a high level, the net zero coverage is there. But then if you dug into the report, I think the statistic was only three to 4% of net zero goals, be they corporate, national, or subnational goals met the quality control check of the, the UN race to zero. So with that sort of backdrop, we have ambition. As you say, the number of companies is growing. I think the number of corporates that have committed to net zero has increased from something like 400 to 900 just in the past two years. So at a headline level, the ambition are, is there, the targets are there, they've been announced. But I'd be the first one to say that the most important thing is to reduce your own emissions and energy usage, and the credit should only be used for those emissions that you can't squeeze out of the system because the technology just isn't there yet. Now, even that is a really big number that would support growth in the voluntary carbon market. So I think companies, we're going to go into a space where companies are going to look more and more deeply at their own emissions. And I think that's exciting for people who are supporting on-site CNI renewable development. I think that's exciting for companies, whether they're hardware or software companies that are helping to reduce, say, emissions in buildings. I think buildings are about to have their day as everybody's going to recognize them as an important source of, of power consumption and emissions. So I think companies are going to start to look internally and, and perhaps add more nuance to their own reduction efforts. And as you said, they're going to look carefully, more and more carefully, I think, at the voluntary carbon markets as a source to to finish off and, and top up those goals. Hmm. Yeah, you, you make a great point. I'm glad you stressed this, that buying however high quality these offsets are or carbon removals, it is not the first step. It is the last step after taking direct action of what you control, scope one, two, three. Okay, awesome. Let's go to one of the other three buckets, sustainable cities, I believe I wrote down. And having read your wonderfully non-corporate bio on the Mass Mutual's venture page, it was fun, really. Did you all pick sustainable cities because in your deepest heart of hearts, you want to be an urban planner, Tim? <laughs> No, good, good catch and, and credit to our director of marketing, Meredith, for, for a great website and, and very personal bios, not just from me, but you, you can read about everyone else at MMP as well. Uh, no, we didn't arrive at it that way. We backed into it in, in the following way. We thought uh, between Bearings and, and Mass Mutual, we're fortunate to know a lot of people who think deeply about buildings and real estate. And then if you combine that with what you see in, in the climate space, and the importance of buildings, right, as a source of power consumption and as a source of emissions, ultimately, that really can't be ignored. And if you build a building, most likely it's with you for 100 plus years, right? So it's something that there's a great job to be done, a big job to be done in terms of retrofitting and making existing buildings better. 
it's also important that we build new buildings in a better, more sustainable way. And if you look at the population trends, I think roughly, you know, four or five out of 10 people on earth live in an urban center. And it's going to increase, I think, to, to seven out of 10 by 2050 or by 2100. So there's just greater and greater concentration and greater and greater need. We're never going to get to net zero as a planet uh, unless we have more sustainable cities. So that's how we came to it. But it is a nice, uh, it is a nice round trip for me. Uh, and, and it does tap on some of my longstanding personal interests. It is pretty amazing to be in the city, New York City, and think about all that went into creating just the layers, the complexity of the infrastructure. I recall I was standing in Central Park before my last meeting on Wednesday looking up at, at the contrast between, you know, Central Park and this, these amazingly high-tech new skyscrapers. And, you know, having just spent three 15-hour days at Climate Week, it's like, ah, oh, this feels like hope, you know, that humans are capable of this kind of, I don't know, coordination, engineering, et cetera. You know, we need to shift direction a little bit, but yeah, that the innovation, the complexity that is New York City was a sign of hope, I believe, as well. No, it's, a, it's amazing what we can do. And I, I think we've come to a point now, and it's going to be really hard, and I don't mean to minimize it at all, but it's, we've come to a point now where we understand we need to green the grid and we need to electrify everything. Right, so that process is in motion, and it's gonna it's gonna take a huge effort. We've kind of come to the point now where we understand that the virtues of electric mobility and what it can mean in terms of emissions reduction, and it's gonna be really hard. We've got a lot of problems to solve: infrastructure, vehicle availability. But we're on a path, and I think my hope is that cities and buildings are the next topic to go mainstream in that way. And that people will start to realize in the more general mainstream conversation just how important they are uh, in terms of energy and carbon. And that once that comes into focus, and you're already seeing some of this, the pressure for disclosure will grow. The pressure to have a net zero plant for all major real estate players will grow. And I think that's right around the corner, which makes it you know, a, good, a good spot to make some venture bets at this stage. Well, it is it is warming to my heart, Tim, that having started my PhD in green building and, and how to mainstream it in 2003, in 2023, we are ready. We're ready to do it, man. Let's join hands, Malcolm. And you still have the po- you still have the ponytail, Chris, which is the essential factor. Clearly, clearly, the, the mainstreaming green building is is the ponytail. Hey, look, let's go back to Climate Week for a second. I wonder if you could just react more broadly outside of Mass Mutual. I don't know what what are the takeaways, not every takeaway, but what are, I don't know, two, three, four reactions, insights that you have from Climate Week that might be worth sharing? It was interesting. It's the first year I've gone, and I'm really glad that I did, but it was a weird process. So over the summer, I started to call friends and say, hey, what's going on at Climate Week? And they said, Tim, it's what you make of it. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of serendipity involved. You have to kind of swing from one event to another and tap your network. And none of it's governed. None of the, the things that, that we're naturally interested in kind of climate tech venture is naturally covered by the conference agenda, by the mainline conference agenda. 
So I thought, okay, this is, this is kind of a fun challenge. What can I string together? So I started calling people and, um, you know, put together a really exciting three-day agenda. And then I noticed everybody was in scramble mode over, over, uh, summer holidays, trying to, trying to put together their own agendas. And then I think the first, first week of September, when everybody was back from vacation, I just got a blitz of invitations to really exciting, high quality events with great speakers. And so my lesson learned is next year, I'm just going to book the whole week. And even if all the events aren't in place by August, that's just fine. If you build it, they will come just go and there'll be good stuff. And people who have been to climate week many times told me that they had never seen this much venture and startup specific programming in the week. So I thought that was encouraging. And that the other thing I picked up is that other cities are starting climate week now. So apparently there's a Chicago climate week coming up soon. And uh, I think that's an encouraging trend as well. So it just seems like a ton of enthusiasm and concentrated in a single city is pretty fantastic. As you said, Monday was rough with the weather, but the rest of the week was pretty good. And, um, I thought it was a great chance to meet a lot of people, especially still a bit in the COVID overhang meet a lot of people that I had only known through Zoom and phone calls uh, prior that week. And if you're lucky, you'll you'll come back with COVID like I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry about that. I hope it wasn't from our meeting at the Pen Club. No, no, no. Maybe listeners hear what sounds like a clothespin on my nose today. I promise it's the same, you know, same person. Yeah, I, I agree. I was there last year for the first time and the energy and audience around climate tech startups and investors, I don't know, I can't measure it, but 20x, right? What it was last year could have easily been double booked every day, sorry, every hour, the whole, the whole week. Yeah. All right, Tim, let's, let's switch from mass mutual Tim to Tim, Tim, to the topic of your path. So imagine you're chatting with the younger Tim, who's hanging out in maybe one of these 12 countries where you work. I don't know. What is some, some advice you might give that person around being more uh, effective, dare I see, happier on this this path? Well, I think if I look back, you know, 10 or 15 years, I'd give the following advice. I'd say, you know, picture your first day at your dream job. You're excited. You're enthusiastic. You know, the sky is the limit. You're fundamentally friendly. You want to be collaborative with everybody. On the downside, you're a bit naive. You're unknown. You're unproven. You're untested, right? So that's think of that as one extreme. Then think about your 10th anniversary at a job. You've been at the same job for a decade, same, same company. At this point, you're very practical. You're realistic. You're measured. You understand how to be effective, how to get things done. On the downside... Maybe you're a bit worn out. You're perhaps no longer as inspired by the mission. Yeah. Maybe you're on the wrong side of things politically within the organization. Who knows? But if you think of those two extremes, I, I always thought, wouldn't it be ideally, it'd be amazing if you could blend the spirit of you know, the young uh, person starting their career with some of the savvy and the lessons learned of, of the experienced veteran. And of course, that's the ideal solution. And the only way to overcome that as a younger person, I think, is to go out of your way to read, to network, to find coaches and mentors, to listen really, really hard 
and try to observe as much as you can. So my advice would be always try to keep that enthusiasm, that optimism from the first day. That's magic, right? You never want to lose that, but you've got to focus it on a handful of specific measurable milestones that you can really take with you uh, and build on. And another piece of advice that I've learned over time is as enthusiastic as you are, try to always have one foot in something that you know and that you're strong in and have that second foot leaning into something that is new. It's got some momentum. It's a bit uncertain. Maybe it's a bit uncomfortable. But if you if you do that and then you keep stepping from stone to stone, always matching a source of strength with some bit of momentum and a bit of a stretch for you, then you're balancing, I think, the idealistic and the practical. And you're actually you're actually taking steps forward. Mm. But yeah, I'm like hard. Like I, I'm the kind of guy that I'm extremely enthusiastic on day one. I want to jump into everything. And you've got to keep that, but also balance it over time. Yeah, I like the, I like the yeah analogy or visual there. One foot in what's known, one foot in what is is more unknown, which I guess relates. I was going to ask you, how do you think you've been able to keep or refine that eagerness for work, whereas you know it can be easier to get in ruts, let's say, or or just block and tackle uh, in the day job. Yeah, I think I was I was very fortunate, you know, both my time in consulting and my time in corporate life that they were both cultures in which there were options, right? It wasn't predefined like when you came in, you know, they didn't tattoo your your function or your subject matter expertise on on you. They, both of those cultures, both at Cambridge Energy Research Associates and at and at Equinor allow people to grow uh if they're curious and proactive around their own uh, their own futures. So I think I was very fortunate in that respect, but it really is up to you. I mean, nobody hands you a, in any of the places I've worked, no, nobody hands you a, a crystal clear, uh, you know, job progression or career description. You know, you, you've got to hustle and make it on your own. So I, I perhaps I was just, I, I was fortunate to land in the right spots, but, um, you know, I think a lot can be said for taking it in your own hands and and trying to make it actionable. And and again, you know, don't just like you mentioned the rut. Like, don't play into the rut. Try to bring things from the external environment that you think are disruptive, exciting, but also relevant to your day to day. And ask people for a chance to incorporate those mm. and make something actionable out of them. I like that. Yeah, the the part about you know being curious and kind of taking initiative and such. Totally agree. And it, it also reminds me of a 360 uh, feedback I got from uh, a managing director at the private equity firm. And they said, you know, you're, you're kind of a self-starter to a fault. And I was like, wait, am I being reprimanded or complimented here? I don't know which one. I'm going to go with the latter. Anyway, how about, uh, Tim, tell us some habits or routines that keep you healthy, sane, and focused in what you do. So one thing that I have given this as a gift to multiple people in my life, I am a huge advocate of the Casper glow light. And if you don't know what this is, it's a little orb that sits on your nightstand or your dresser and it gradually wakes you up in the morning, kind of gradually increases the light in the room, almost mimicking a sunrise. And to me, it's, it's just 
a much more pleasant way to wake up than your your iPhone going off with those predictable ringtones. To me, that's just a great way to start that to ease into it. I try to stick to five or six rules every day that I think increases the chances of it feeling like a good day. I feel this uh, coming on. I feel this coming on. At the end of the day, right? So everybody's different, right? Whether it's a set of you know, workout routines, whether it's diet, whether it's dedicated time with, with friends and family, um, think about, you know, the five or six things every day that could have the biggest impact on you having a, you know, quote unquote, good day, uh, at the end of it and, and get those, get those done early, put those in place, maximize your chance. The other thing I've learned as I, as I go on through life is I try to match the task with my energy level during the day. So again, everybody's different, but for me, I really try to front load the conceptual work in the morning, deep analysis, strategy, writing. I try to resist the urge to wake up and spend two hours digging out my out of my inbox every morning because that's to me that's the most valuable time for thinking and reflection. In the middle of the day, I try to do listening tasks. So most of my my pitch meetings I'll take in the middle of the day. Most of the team meetings in the middle of the day. Cause I'm, I'm kind of in that balance zone. I've, I've gotten some energy from the tasks in the, in the, at the beginning of the day, but I'm a bit more listening and processing mode. And then I save all of the, the scheduling, the heavy lifting on email, the logistics. I try to save that for the last hour or two of the day when my energy is at its lowest, but I can still, you know, I can still make progress on, on email and calendar. That's super actionable, but I, I got to go back. I think you've you've teased the audience. You're like, well, I just I just follow these five rules, you know, <laughs> and you just moved on to I've got what what are some of these rules here? Yeah, so the the easy ones are, um, you know, ten thousand steps or whatever you whatever you think you need in terms of of mobility. I try to spend some quality time with each of my kids separately because they're five and four, and I find when you separate them, you get very different interactions. So I try to spend quality time with with Nick and Katie and of course with my wife Allison so so I try to make sure there's always time set aside for that there are are really nerdy things like how many ounces of water I drink in a day hella how many ounces Tim um I, it should be over 100 ounces of water <laughs> you're really pulling it out of me so partly Tim you get your steps in by walking back and forth to the to the restroom again that's right yeah that's right that definitely helps add to the total and then, you know, the sugar intake, there's a threshold for that, 36 grams of sugar. Yeah. I don't always stick to that. Anyone who knows me will tell, will tell you that I don't always stick to that one. So, you know, those are, those are a handful of rules. I won't give away all of them, Chris, because I yeah. think there could be a second thought. I think it's all. <laughs> but if, if you're looking for a great book to find these sorts of things, I recommend Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss. Oh, yeah. 200 pages loaded with these sorts of tips and tricks. Well, just say Tim Ferriss on this podcast and you get, you get lots of folks really excited. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, put it in, in, the, in the show description. Yeah. I've got whatever, four or five of his books uh, back here. He, he kind of got, got me hooked on entrepreneurship uh, years ago. I'd also direct folks to a website called routines.club, which is kind of a, in beta, but it, it tracks the ridiculous details of, I don't know, five or six influencer optimizer types like Tim, it goes through their day with supplements and, you know, this nutrition, that smoothie, this meditation, super nerdy. I think you'll love it. But anyway, 
clearly love it as well. All right, last one, Tim. Tell us a few uh, books, podcasts, et cetera, you think listeners may find value in. Okay, this is also a dangerous place because I'm, I'm always filled with book recommendations. So I've got, I've got two categories for you. I've got climate books and venture books. Thank you. Hopefully that covers yeah. your audience most. Yeah. On the climate books, I mean, the two that are very useful, I find time and time again, are Speed and Scale and the Bill Gates book. But the hidden gem, I think, is a book by Tom Rand called The Case for Climate Capitalism. I read it during the early days of the pandemic, and it always stuck with me as something that was very practical, and, and it was useful in multiple contexts, whether it was thinking about business school curriculum, or thinking about venture investing, or thinking about kind of project developer capital allocation. I really can't say enough good things about Tom Moran's book. And then on the venture book side, I mean, two that I just love, one is highly analytical. It's The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby, which came out last year, I think. I've read it twice at least. And I still go back to it occasionally. To balance it out with something that's extremely funny, I think, is the Disrupted by Dan Lyons. And I have to go out of my way to recommend the audible version of this read by the author with a fantastic Boston accent. And he, he gets into some of the craziness and absurdity of life in our industry uh, in just a really memorable way that always stuck with me. Also a deep uh, pandemic uh, read. And then the, you know, the surprise book in the venture category, and I'm ashamed to say this because somebody handed this to me as a gift. My first boss at Statoil handed it to me as a gift in 2010. I finally read it in 2021. Uh, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital by Carlota Perez. And it just gives you a, a kind of macro view of waves of innovation, how technology can become over-invested, but then pretty broadly installed. And then you see the productivity gains and you see the value creation later in the cycle. And that was always just a very useful guide to me, helping me to think, where are we in the cycle? What's happening? What's a likely path forward? Uh, I thought that was a, a good resource over time. Well, I love how organized, uh, Tim, your recommendations are. And clearly folks need to take advantage of uh, a new six-week holiday to read your six books. Thanks for that homework. All right, final, final. Tim, final words, call to action. Who do you want to hear from this pod? Yeah, I would be delighted to hear from startups, investors, incubators, and accelerators that are focused on our priority investment themes for Mass Mutual Climate Tech. And those are, as we discussed, climate intelligence and sustainable cities, but also clean power. If we haven't connected and you're in those zones, Series A, Series B, love to get to know you uh, and hear more about what you're doing because we're passionate about what we're doing and uh, we'd love to join forces and see what we can do together. Perfect, Tim. Hey, look, uh, excited for the, the recent move over to Mass Mutual. What a cool platform for helping these climate tech companies grow. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. Talk soon. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.